Good evening. Good to see you this evening. I'm going to start with an uh, announcement. If we could ask those folks who come to first service, typically on Sunday morning, if next week we could move in and move up. Uh, our song leaders have talked about how that would help the singing a lot. We're so spread out. There's about 200 of us, and we're very spread out. If we could just move up and move in, I think that would help dramatically. So please consider that next week. Do that for us. Appreciate it. Uh, it was a few weeks ago I got in trouble, I guess, because I called Downtown Abbey, Downtown Abbey, because that's the way it's spelled. Forgive me for pronouncing something the way it's spelled. You people call Antilly Road Antley. I don't understand it, but anyway, I do the uh, announcing at the Wiley Games, and the first year that we played Wichita Falls High, they're the Coyotes, and for the whole first half, I called them the Coyotes. Until somebody made a point to come and tell me that they're the Cowts, not the Coyotes. Well, they don't spell it Coyotes. If you want to be called something different, then spell it the, right, spell it the way you want it to be called, right? You spell it Coyotes, it's going, to be, it's going to be Coyotes, right? Okay, get off my soapbox for a second. There's another abbey in London. It's called Westminster Abbey. Maybe you've seen it. My daughter is in... She's been in London this semester. She's in Italy now, but they toured Westminster Abbey. It's a beautiful religious structure. It's a church, ornate fixtures, just aesthetic architecture, just gorgeous. And one time, a tour was being conducted, and the tour guide was talking about all the, 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 the ornate fixtures and all the, the beautiful architecture and, and went through all the history of Westminster Abbey until finally, about 30 minutes into the tour, a tourist asked, when's the last time someone was saved here? It's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, it's a valid question for Oldham Lane. You know, we got a nice building. We got a nice campus here. We got, you know, a new building. We've got, you know, a, a family center and all those things. But when's the last time someone heard the gospel preached here? When's the last time someone was baptized here? I mean, your church can be about a lot of things, right? It can have a lot of great things going for it. There can be a lot of programming in it, beautiful architecture and all those kind of things. It can be growing, but... When's the last time someone heard the gospel? Can someone come here and hear about Jesus? I told you that when I was a kid, I used to act like I was a, a priest. Growing up Catholic, that's what I wanted to be. My grandfather built me a, a clubhouse. And I used the clubhouse for many things, but one of the things I used it for was a church. And I would have the neighborhood kids come over, and I would, like I said, hold them hostage as I preached to them. That was my church, right? I would play church. Have you ever played church? I'm not talking about his kids. As adults even. You ever played church? It happens all too often in our culture that Christians come together weekly and all they really do is play church. They go through the protocol. Maybe the singing is good, maybe the preaching is good, but it doesn't affect their lives in any way, shape, or form. They leave out the doors when it's over with without any kind of transformation. No zeal or fervor. People meet, they do church, they leave. If the church is not making a difference in people's lives, then something is wrong. If the church is not making a difference in the community, then something is wrong. As I have emphasized over and over again the last few months, the church that we read about in the book of Acts is a church on the move. You want to talk about restoring first century Christianity? You want to talk about being the church in the book of Acts? Well, then you got to be all of it. And it wasn't just about what they did when they met. It's about what they did when they scattered as well. They were always the church. They didn't go to church. They were the church. 
And so what we do when we gather matters. What we do here is vitally important. And what we do when we leave here is vitally important. Remember several years ago when Tom Cruise announced his love for Katie Holmes on the Oprah Winfrey show and he stood up on her couch and he said, I love this woman and everybody made fun of him and thought he was a nut, a nut job. And, but that's what you do, isn't it? That's what you do when you love someone or something so much. You can't help to let it out. You can't hold it in. You have to tell the world. Do we feel that way about the church? That we love it so much that we just, we can't keep it inside. We have to talk about it. We have to express it in some way, shape, or form. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I am completely and totally convinced that what is going to draw people to Christ is love. And not just a love for God, right? It starts there, but a love for one another. When people see us loving the person next to us, when people see us loving the person in the pew sitting next to us, when people see that love on display within these walls and outside of it, that's going to draw people in. I firmly believe that. I've seen some folks that aren't very loving, and it affected the church. Just one person can be a cancer on the team, right? My guess is the relationship that people see we have with each other is a major draw. But if they see the opposite, that's going to be a major detract, distraction as well. How are we going to show the love of Christ for sinners if we're not loving people ourselves? Jesus stated by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how people are going to know that we're the church. That's how people are going to know that there is something better for them when they see us loving one another. Yes, you should be convicted about the gospel. Yes, you should be convicted about truth. But the thing that's going to draw people in is our love, our love for God and our love for one another. If you don't love your brother, if, there, if love isn't there, then you cannot be evangelistic. You won't be successful. You can have all the fancy programs you want. You can do all the, the slick advertising. But if people don't see true love on display, it's not going to draw them in. Without a love for God and a love for one another, we have nothing and we are nothing. 
Actually, that's not completely accurate. We're something. We're liars. Notice what John writes. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. This isn't rocket science. This is foundational. This is basic. It's practical. In essence, John is saying, you know God? You know how he loved you? Then you need to love other people like that. You know how he sent his only begotten son? He sacrificed his son, Jesus, on the cross. Because he loved you that much, you need to love others. You need to reciprocate that love. Back to him, back to others. We are in the purpose, we are in the world, I should say, for the purpose of changing the world. It's our mission, it's our goal to change the world. How do we do that? One soul at a time. That's our focus. And love is the motivation, the catalyst behind everything we are and everything that we do. It's our identifying mark. Notice what John writes in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we have love for one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one may have seen God, but you know how they can see him on display? By our love for one another. By seeing that manifested in us. I have a friend that's been married for over 30 years. Uh, I I knew him way back when. And when his wife and he first got married, uh, she was hesitant to come to church. She didn't grow up in the church. He did. And she was hesitant to come because the very first time she visited with him, Someone approached her and said, where are you from? And she said, well, I'm from here. I, you know, I go with him. And he said, well, what's your church background? And she told him. And he was very rude and condescending, telling her basically she's going to miss out on heaven if she doesn't do something. Well, that turned her off. Can you imagine? Imagine that, that it's not a good evangelistic approach to say you're going to hell right off the bat. And for many years, she didn't visit with him. She didn't go to church with him. Thankfully, she didn't allow one person to ruin her experience. She became a Christian many years ago and is faithful to this day, but we've got to be careful in our approach, don't we? That's an extreme, but it's love that draws people in. It's like the man who decided that the Church of Christ was having a gospel meeting down the road and he was going to go. He'd never been to church, he'd never been to that church, but he decided he was going to go. So he went to the gospel meeting, he came home, and his wife asked him, so how did it go? And he said, well, the preacher told me I was going to hell, and he seemed rather happy about it. Obviously, that's not a great approach. Who wants to be a part of a fellowship that's crusty, rude, insensitive, who seems to get more joy out of telling people that they're going to hell than telling them about how they can go to heaven? Folks, we should be truth-tellers with tears. It should pain us that someone is living a lost lifestyle because we know what that's like. We've been there. May we never forget where we came from, and may we help others understand that there's something better out there, right? We have a divine mandate. The mandate is to go. Go is an action word. In the original language, it means as you go. In other words, as we pass through this world, we carry the gospel with us. We share it with those around us. We do this with our lips, but we also do it with our lives. As we go, we are to preach the gospel to all creation. And the word preach there derives from the meaning to herald. We are the king's heralds. We herald the good news. We preach that good news. We are his his hands and his feet in the world. And we understand the purpose, right? We understand why it is that we have been saved. It's been to save others. He He leaves us here to tell the story. He saved us to be tools for his ministry in this world. 
We tell it with our lips, but we also live it in our daily lives. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, he says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our joy, our peace, our love, our distinctiveness should cause those around us to want to know what it is that we have. Our lives should be like a, a great spotlight, a beam that shines. It shines the light of Christ, exposing him, illuminating him so that people can see that hope. We have a divine mandate, but we also have a divine message. And our message is not about our preacher. Our message is not about the beauty of our singing. Our message is not about our building or the success of programming. Our message is clear. It's the gospel it's the gospel plan, plain and simple, and we must never forget that. We love the church for a variety of reasons. The relationships mainly, we love the church for a lot of different reasons, but first and foremost, we love the church because Christ died for it, because of the good news that we get to preach. If we love the church simply because we have a great youth group, that's not enough. If we love the church simply because we like the messages, that's not enough. If we love the church simply because of the singing, that's not enough. Our message is not a message about our congregation. Our message is a message of hope to the hurting. It's a message of peace to the tormented. It's a message of life to the dead. It has, as Paul writes, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is a message that everyone in the world needs to hear and has universal application. It is a message that we have that has the powerful potential to change every soul, every life for all eternity. So, we have a divine mandate to go. We have a divine message, and we have a divine miss mission. Christ came to seek and save the lost. He was sent, right, to seek and save the lost. The apostles were sent. We are sent. That that sending transcends time. We, we have been sent, so will we go? The great commission often becomes the great omission, right? We must make certain that we understand the number one responsibility of the church to be the agency by which the story of salvation is told. Can't get comfortable. We gather in our comfortable meeting places. We kind of look at salvation as fire insurance, you know, or as a life insurance policy. Hey, I'm, I'm saved from hell. That's good. There's way more to do. You haven't been saved to sit and saved to serve. We are the church, and the church sees to it that it offers the one thing that the world can't. Let's never forget our role and our distinctiveness. See, when, I was, when I was coaching my first year, we had nine players on the high school team. It's hard to do anything with nine players in practice. You need 10, right? So you can do five on five. And we had a young man that was at every practice because he wanted to be the team manager. So he would get water and do laundry for me. He'd do a lot of things to help me out. He was my right-hand man, and he was a big, big help. And I asked him one day, his name was John. I said, John, you, you, you want to suit up in practice? You know, maybe be that, that 10th guy for us so that we can have an even number so we can have five on five. And he said, sure, he was ecstatic to do so. And after a while, he was so helpful. I said, well, why don't you why don't you have a uniform? I'll give you a uniform and you can dress out for games. You can be a part of the team that way too. You can still be the manager, but you know, I'll let you dress out and sit on the sidelines. Oh, he was ecstatic to do that. I mean, that was so exciting for him until halfway through the season, he got disgruntled with his role. He wondered why he wasn't getting to play. 
I thought we understood things. I thought we had this understanding. His mom even came and got mad at me. Do you think he's ever going to play? I said, probably not. I mean, we, we had this discussion. I'll try to insert him in games when, when I can. But, I mean, the guidelines were clear from the very beginning. The agreement was you continue to help me out, and as a reward, you, you know, you dress out for games. And he was fine with that. But as time grew, he became disgruntled with the current arrangement. I think, unfortunately, in Christianity, that happens where we get disgruntled with our current arrangement and we want something more. We want the church to serve us. We want to be a consumer rather than a laborer, right? And, and we've got to be careful not to forget what this is all about. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the divine mandate, the divine message, and the divine mission. Ultimately, that's what it's about. Let's not forget what this is about, our number one responsibility. May we never forget the cost of our salvation. Christ died for us in order to be a true follower. We must die for ourselves. We must die to ourselves. And this is something that happens every day. This is not a one-time deal, right? You choose slavery every day. You choose to place yourself under the control of Jesus Christ. To become a Christian means there's a transfer of allegiance. You're now under Jesus' rule and reign. And it's the best life, but freedom is never completely free, right? It comes at a cost, and certainly it came at the cost of Jesus. Dying to ourselves means destroying the entitlement attitude and disposing of the consumer mindset. This is about Jesus, his church, his mission. How are we going to reach the world around us if we're always looking inward? As a church, I don't want to get caught in maintenance mode, just protecting what we've built Rather, I want us to always keep striving to make and grow disciples. And that's not really me. That's what God wants from us, right? Just read through Scripture. You see that over and over again. That God expects us to launch out in love, to go into all the world, and make disciples of all the nations. Church isn't there just to cater to us or to serve us. The church should be united in the mission to tell the story of salvation to a lost world. The church doesn't need more consumers. It needs more laborers. And yes, it's, it's great to have a church that's got, you know, nice buildings, that's climate controlled. It's nice to have a church that, you know, has a lot of great people with a lot of great relationships being built and nice programming and, and a great youth group and all those kind of things. And certainly we need to, we need to focus our efforts on those things but just not at the expense of the number one thing. And let our love be the catalyst that drives that number one thing. We have a divine mandate. We have a divine mission. We have a divine message. So let's go, right? Sometimes I watch myself to see if I have any bad habits, and I've got a really bad habit. You're saying, well, you got more than one. It's the fact that I say right all the time, and I'm trying to stop that, so I'm sorry. You know, in, in Australia, there is a, a, a place called The Gap. It's not a clothing store. Uh, it's a, a large cliff near Sydney Harbor. And it's, it's, it's a big tourist site. A lot of people go to The Gap to see, you know, the beautiful landscape and the beautiful view. But The Gap is also infamous. It's also famous for another reason. It's not just a tourist site, it's also a, a place where many people go to end their lives. Many, many people have gone there to jump to their death, 
to commit suicide. And so the Australian government has taken some measures to try to curtail this. They, they put up a, an inward-leaning fence. They put up phone booths with a suicide hotline number. Please call this number if you're contemplating suicide. Um, they put up counseling booths. But you know what the number one deterrent has been since 1964? The number one deterrent has been a guy by the name of Don Ritchie who lives across the street from the Gap. And every day, he takes his binoculars and keeps a constant vigil towards the Gap. And when he sees someone stepping over the railing, considering jumping to their death, he rushes over and offers them a cup of coffee or tea and an ear to listen. And he tries to convince them that life isn't so bad that you need to end it. That there's actually something worth living for. And since 1964, he has saved hundreds, hundreds of people from jumping to their demise. In fact, he's been called the angel of the gap. And when asked about all of it, his response is, you can't just sit there and watch. you got to do something. That's my charge to you. Don't just sit there and watch. I mean, do something, right? There it is again. Do something. Where is your Jerusalem? You know, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he saw so many lost people there that had missed out on the Messiah. The Messiah was standing right in front of them, and they missed out on him. And he wept over the city. Rather than pounding a, you know, a, a Bible, rather than yelling at them that they're all going to hell, he wept over them. Because they missed the Messiah. He was right in front of them, and they pushed him aside. Where's your Jerusalem? I'll tell you where it's at. It's right outside these doors. So when you head out there, pray for those folks that need Jesus. Weep over them. And do something. Maybe you need to do something tonight. I don't know what it is. Whatever you need to do to get right with God, Jim's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you in some way, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.